There is no reforming the schools. The options are survival or escape. But this realization actually marks the beginning of a new and fulfilling educational journey. For both students and parents. Welcome to the School Sucks Project. Our mission is to provide clarity, support, and empowerment to parents who are concerned and frustrated with the content and culture of the public schools. We achieve this mission through the creation of educational and entertaining media and the development of supportive communities. Continuously building a more detailed picture of what genuine self-directed education can look like. We are determined to pursue this mission because we understand the dangers of indoctrination, toxic school culture, and short-sighted education policies. And we deeply value intrinsically motivated learning, autonomy, and choice in education. And please remember the three important facts we first tried to share when we started in 2009. The schools will not improve. Higher education will not improve. The political conversation about these institutions will not improve. Only we can improve. So let's begin. Welcome back to The Essential School Sucks. This is number 15, Building Self-Directed Learning Communities. The voice you're going to hear is Diane Murphy. She was a public school teacher for 30 years before she took an early retirement and founded the Big Fish Learning Community in New Hampshire. This was recorded five years ago, but I'm proud to report that Big Fish is still going strong. We had this conversation right at the beginning. In fact, it was so green that I had just listened to her pitch the idea to a group of entrepreneurs before we recorded this conversation that will be explained in the original monologue. So now halfway through this second section of shows in The Essential School Sucks, leaving institutional schooling and finding educational alternatives, we continue to go back and forth the best I can between the mindset shifts helpful in embracing the idea of leaving the public schools with what you're hopefully finding to be a generous exhibition of solutions and alternatives. Speaking of that, before we get started, I want to make sure everybody who it might apply to knows about our partner for The Essential School Sucks. It is Praxis. Right now, if you are, or if you know somebody, I mean, you know somebody who has college potentially on the horizon, please go to discoverpraxis.com slash school sucks podcast, or just click the link right in the show notes for this episode and get a copy of their free guidebook. It is written by Isaac Morehouse and Hannah Frankman. It's called forward tilt, and it is a collection of secrets and strategies acquired through the years at Praxis, helping many ambitious young people navigate a better path, an overpass, if you will, escaping the traffic jam of the traditional college road. So again, forward tilt, get your free copy. It's linked right in the show notes. If you want to learn about other ways that you can support the School Sucks Project, both in our future pursuits and in this current endeavor, The Essential School Sucks, check the show notes or stay tuned after this conversation for more info. i got a couple of people I want to thank, too. All right, here we go. This is The Essential School Sucks, number 15. Originally released September 18th, 2017 as podcast 513, Building Self-Directed Learning Communities with Diane Murphy. If you are interested in a follow-up, 
Diane and I talked again on March 4th, 2021. That is episode 705 of School Sucks Podcast. It is called A Year of Adjustment. And I will also link you in the show notes to the page at schoolsucksproject.com where you can find that one. All right, here it is. Hey everybody, this is Brett. Welcome back to School Sucks. Today is September 18th, and I'm just taking a break from ooh, planning. You ever planned? Wow. Uh, School Sucks Across America. This is, if you haven't heard about this yet, it is a cross-country and back tour that I am doing. This trip now covers 8,000 plus road miles and will last now 40 days. It has expanded. I'm going to be leaving October 15th, and I do not expect to return home until November 25th. And I've actually added some stops, some new cities that were not on the original poster that I put out, St. Louis, Missouri, and then on the way back, Dallas, Texas, and New Orleans, Louisiana. I think they pronounce that now. Folks, every additional detail that comes into focus, the more excited I get about this. Uh, October 15th can't come soon enough, and I'm excited to get out there and meet some of you, for sure, on my way to L.A. and on my way home. So let's talk about today's show. Uh, First-time guest, her name is Diane Murphy, and I met her at the Free Coast Festival that I attended the weekend before last. We recorded this interview in a bar called The Seventh Settlement in Dover, New Hampshire, she was there with the other Big Fish Learning Community staff members, and they were doing kind of a, a meet and greet on a Sunday afternoon. So we sat down and we talked for about an hour. It's an energetic conversation. We cover a lot in that hour. So it starts out with us talking about our frustrations with the systems in which we taught. Now, these are different systems. Diane was a public school teacher for 30 years. She retired earlier to found and serve as the director for the Big Fish Learning Community. We move on to discuss the details of the Big Fish Learning Community. And I think this is a conversation that is potentially very helpful to parents who are creating self-directed learning environments for their own children or for people who are looking for similar types of cooperatives or community work opportunities, or even just social experiences for their children if their children do not go to school. So I mentioned at Free Coast Fest, this Sunday was Entrepreneurship Day, and they did that Shark Tank thing where people could get up and make their pitches, and then there was a panel of entrepreneur mentors. And Diane was actually one of the pitchers. She pitched Big Fish to the panel, and uh, I managed to grab the handout from Jake, And I just wanted to share a couple excerpts from that handout with you. Diane writes, After teaching many years, I am starting an alternative learning center for teens. Big Fish is a hybrid. Not school, not home, but a place for teens to live and learn in their own way. Our goal is for students to take ownership of their education. Teens will choose how, what, and when they learn based on personal interests and passions. We will provide mentorship, classes, set up internships, and encourage connections to the community. Students will build an electronic portfolio, yes, of their work as evidence to move forward to college, tech training, the arts, entrepreneurship, or a plan of their own. 
we open in January at the McConnell Center in Dover, New Hampshire. And the core beliefs of Big Fish, well aligned with our own here at School Sucks. Number one, young people want to learn. In fact, no force is required, I found. Two, learning happens everywhere. So important. Three, it really is okay to leave school. Many young people who are miserable in school, academically or socially, stay because they believe that leaving school will rule out or at least diminish the possibility of a successful future. We believe that young people can achieve a meaningful and successful adulthood without going to school. We've seen it happen over and over again. Uh, Fourth core belief, how people behave under one set of circumstances and assumptions does not predict how they will behave under a very different set of circumstances and assumptions. So in other words, school success or failure is not a predictor of any child's potential for uh, future success or failure outside of school. What we learn in school is how to do well in school, as John Taylor Gatto said. Uh, Five, structure communicates as powerfully as words and often more powerfully. It is not enough to tell kids that we want them to be self-motivated or that we want them to value learning for its own sake, if the structure of their lives and their education is actually communicating the opposite message. Voluntary, rather than compulsory classes, the ability to choose what one studies rather than following a required curriculum, and the absence of tests and grades all contribute to a structure that supports and facilitates intrinsic motivation and self-directed learning. Six, as adults working with young people, we should mostly strive to make possible rather than to make sure. You'll hear in this conversation, Diane and I talk about people's focus on outcomes. Remember outcomes-based education, that fun thing, and how everything was planned right down to the attitudes that students should have when they're done with government schooling? Contrast that to what's being proposed here, which is just the opening of doors, the creation of opportunities. And number seven, the best preparation for a meaningful and productive future is a meaningful and productive present. Too often, education is thought of in terms of preparation. Do this now, even though it doesn't feel connected to your most pressing interests and concerns, because later on, you will find it useful. Gosh, how many times have we complained about that claim on this show? We believe that helping teenagers to figure out what seems interesting and worth doing right now in their current lives is also the best way to help them develop self-knowledge and experience at figuring out what kind of life they want and what they need to do or learn in order to create that life. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. And if you're uh, you know, a home-educating parent or just somebody who's thinking about this down the road, even though most of this conversation is uh, a contrast between our frustrations around our own past teaching experiences to the Big Fish learning experience, as I edited this, I made sure that there were plenty of little valuable nuggets, you like nuggets, of information along the way that will be helpful to parents, teachers, and self-directed learners. So that's it for today. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care.
Diane, welcome to the show. All right. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, I'm excited that I ran into you today. I had actually been trying to run into you. Not very hard, but I've been... I'd been trying to run into you too. For a couple months. Yeah. You are the founder and director of the Big Fish Learning Community. Yeah, yeah. But you come to this from, what, 30 years as a public school English teacher? 30 years. Oh, my goodness. I I was welcomed into the York School community, which was, uh, I was 23 years old. I had been overseas. I went on an adventure in the Philippines, right out of, you know, actually finished college over there. That's another lifetime story. But um, welcome into the York community because I was uh, an adventurer and because I was creative and I did not have a teaching uh, certificate. Oh, wow. Yeah. Got a job at York Middle School. And um, I went up to the USM and tried to get my certificate. And they said, you know, you have a degree in psychology. You probably should go do something else. And I persisted and got a got a, my certificate. Yeah. 30 years later, I resigned. But I had a great career. I was very lucky. I, I actually had a great career. And it was English all the way? Uh, social studies in English. Yeah. Um, and um, drama, theater. I feel very lucky. I mean, kids are awesome. Kids, teenagers, uh, 6th through 12th grade, mostly 6th through eight, and then dual enrollment kids, community college kids, kids in theater, all ages. And, you know, I mean, what adult gets to play with teenagers all the time and be creative? And uh, they are, they're closer to their truth than the average. Yes, yes. You know, I notice you're many years short of retirement, but you have resigned. Oh, yeah. And I'm interested in hearing more about that story because that's very, very rare. You don't hear about that happening rare. too much. I'm not sure my um, my CPA brother is probably hardly speaking to me right now. He thinks I've made a mess of my retirement. Yeah. Um, I watch my parents talk about retirement a lot. Mm-hmm. My dad was a school teacher. My mom was a nurse. The sad story is in America is that uh, this, this sort of fantasy about retirement, it's really a lie. And my parents, the best part of their lives were when they were working. My mom loved being a nurse. My dad loved being a teacher. But he also had this fantasy about, well, if I save all this money, you know, I'm going to have this incredible retirement. And they were really lonely in their retirement. Mm. Lonely and and lacking purpose. Um, My mom actually nursed until she was about 75 years old. Oh, wow. She lied about her age. She's really cute. She's 86. (laughs) She looks, you know, 76. So so with that in mind, my husband's really supportive. He's a rebel at heart. He's a self-employed carpenter. And uh, we just said... Yeah, we're not going to have health insurance. I'm not going to have any guaranteed salary. We won't be paying ourselves until we open in January, and we're going to pay ourselves not very much, but, you know, enough to uh, pay the bills. Right. But, you know, also I'm lucky, right? So um, we own a home. Um, our last child has gone through college. Everybody's emancipated, so we, we have lower costs now, and we've been lucky. Uh, lucky because we had family who helped us. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, somebody's like Darren, uh, our, our coast, core staff person who you know is, you know, he said, my parents helped me with the first four years and then I went in to get a PhD with no student loans. I mean, that's unheard of today. Absolutely. So, yeah, I, I left. The only other time I've heard this story about a teacher leaving early was John Taylor Gatto, who oh, I'm sure. John Taylor Gatto. Yeah. And he was very public about the reasons for his resignation. How did your attitude change over those 30 years in the school towards the relationship, I guess, between school and education? Well, when I first started um, in the mid-80s, I was really lucky. I started with, there are people who who are really creative in in York. um, This is York, Maine. York, Maine. Right, yeah. Right, York, Maine. And there were, you know, we were inviting multiple intelligences and differentiated learning and experiential learning. Uh, We put together a Shakespeare festival. Um, and a Far Eastern Pacific Rim Expo. They were, you know, integrating because we know that when subjects connect, mm-hmm. that they actually make more sense, right? Right. 
So I was really lucky in the beginning. So for the first seven to 10 years, my career was like, wow, I'm getting paid to do this. I'm teaching kids to make connections with all of these, you know, really neat ideas and concepts and themes and uh, they're reading and writing and exploring literature and um, understanding current events and geography, you know, and cultures. I really love to explore other cultures through literature and, and um, you know, activities. Um, and then it kind of took a turn toward, um, you know, there's, it's the two sides of the coin. We have this incredible technology that came to us. I think York was, thanks to Ronnie Emery, dedicated computer teacher, uh, the first school to be networked, believe it or not, in, in the state of Maine, mm-hmm. it was York Middle School. You know, so here we had internet. You know, we had this thing called Metacrawler. Yep, yep. <laughs> I remember Metacrawler. Fred Ryder. Good Fred Ryder. And, and so it was great, especially as an English teacher, because you're reading all of these kids work and their penmanship you know most people are never really good at penmanship anymore because they don't have nuns and so we ended up being able to uh you know having kids reading uh writing uh, um online and typing documents it was a real freedom for expression mm-hmm. and then they could also see see their their own work more clearly as well and peer feedback um so the corner i've been somewhat political as far like following politics i don't know how political i am but i'm always just what you see is what you get and and it seems like around goals two two thousand, yeah. No child left behind, no teacher left standing. At first, I actually got involved with uh, some of the writing on the main state learning results. I was part of a committee, and we'd go up to Augusta and we'd have these workshops, and they'd be like, "Oh, what do you think kids should know and be able to do?" And you know, here's the language, and you know, they use terms like the rhetorical aspects of speaking and listening. You know, who who talks like that, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, some of the language got crafted, and I didn't. It wasn't so bad. My principal at the time was like, "Don't worry, Diane. This stuff's going away." You know. Every Every three years, we're doing a different dance. That okay? is, that does seem to be the case, yeah. Right, except it didn't go away. It just got amped up. Yeah. So it never went away. It actually started driving everything. And and I'm not saying we don't need to have checkpoints for what kids know and be able to do, but, you know, we don't need to have so many checkpoints for what kids know and can do. Mm-hmm. Um, so what ended up happening was because we could generate so much data, we started generating a lot of data. Yes. And then what I found happening for me was as a creative person um, who also I feel like a strongly intuitive person, which which makes for a pretty good teacher when you're when you're able to connect with a human first. Yeah. And sure. then and you're teaching in. the person and not a subject. Exactly. Yeah. Sure. So, I mean, I could always go along with whatever curriculum I was told I needed to kind of follow loosely. But I always started with a person first. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that's how we all learn. I, I mean, some people learn in mass, fine. And some people, you know, not, it doesn't resonate for everyone. I had a student this year tell me, too much choice. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, wow. Well, I mean, yeah. And, and actually a quite brilliant young woman. And she told me too much choice because she was so conditioned to being told what to do. Yeah. That, you know, in eighth grade, it was like, what do you mean? I have to decide what to do? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was so sad to me. But it is how most of them, I mean, it's just, well, we are what we practice. So if I could write one thing on big fish walls, well, we will write many things on the walls, but one of my mottos, and if, if the student who has had me in the past, because I know there are a couple thousand of you who I have had the privilege of working with, mm-hmm. I always like to say, you know, we are what we practice. So who are you? Mm. Yeah, that's so important. I mean, I remember having one class like that in all of my like latter school experience, like from middle school to high school, when that kind of treatment I think is really important when you're trying to assert yourself as 
a person as an individual and you're going through this routine of feeling like a bucket, just going from one station to yeah. another and having stuff dumped Check into the box. you. Yeah, it was like the newspaper class was the one exception to that. And that was, you know, something I did for the first time when I was a freshman in high school. The, the school where we would sit around and talk and get to know each other in the classroom. It was unlike anything else I experienced in school. That was how I picked my college it's major. Insanity. Yeah. Because that's how people learn. And you see, that is what, when you, if you look at Peter Gray and the Sudbury model and natural learning, mm -hmm. you know, this is how humans learn. This is what we know. This is what anthropologists know. This is what anyone who studies human behavior knows, is that people learn in community. They learn because they care about something. They learn because they have a mentor. They, you know, this, I had a student from two years ago I saw over at the Black Bean. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, in Rollinsford and uh, I hadn't seen him in two years. You know, he grew a foot. He's like, give me a big hug. And uh, he's like, wow, I had like, uh, I almost had a class kind of like ours. Like nobody talks to us at the high school. Like nobody talks to us. Like the adults don't right. talk yeah. to us. And I'm like, so we have these scripts now. Like everybody's has to, every teacher has to read the same novels mm -hmm. because somebody decided that these are the best novels. Yeah. You know, like, so they were like, what i don't know 10 novels being read like there's just these limits on some authority someone in authority said this is how this is going to produce the best results but it's it makes no sense because your audience is you know completely unique one from the next like you don't know what the best results were going to be for any one kid right right and that's been i guess that's my biggest why i had to leave i had to leave and and i love so many of the people i work with but i had to leave because you start to feel like you're doing more harm than good. Do you, like, yeah. yeah. Do you feel like your experience is unique? Because, I mean, this is one of the things that I've been saying on the show from the beginning. Just from my observation of the teachers that I had, when people were young, they're energetic, they're excited, they're optimistic. The experiences you describe for yourself in right. York, right? Yeah. 30 years later, not so much the case. So I wonder, is it like common story that you have, that it's this yeah, series I, of I events? Or is. is it just the natural process of this is what the system does to people. It is disempowering for students and teachers alike because a lot of people don't do what you do. They don't leave, but you can tell that they've been there 30 years, right? You can right. tell the new, excited, optimistic, energetic right. teacher from the guy who puts on the film strip and, and falls asleep. I had them one, uh, you know, one period after another when I was in high school, those two, two guys. Right. And I said, maybe they're not different guys so much as, you know, they're on opposite sides of exposure to this system, you know? Right. The system, you know, I, th I think what happens is that most of my former colleagues don't disagree with me. Uh, everybody yeah, wants yeah. to be that Robin Williams, oh, captain, my captain, you know, sure? in Dead Poets Society. I mean, that's like the, you know, we want to capture the hearts and minds. And I'm so I was a theater director, too. So, you know, I'm like a director, cr creative person. That's not everybody's style either. I mean, I love the other colleagues I work with who are soft spoken and, you know, more methodical because there's different ways to see the spirit of these kids who show up in your classrooms. Mm -hmm. But it seems like, and this is whether it's corporate America or whether it's just America, America, because we have this need to organize everything, is like there has to be this um, formula where everybody's looking for this magic formula. Indeed. And so there's no formula. And that's what I want to say is, you know what? Stop trying to one day. Okay, we had this, <laughs> this administrator. Every kid in the building had to have a four-inch notebook, a four-inch binder. Now, I don't know if, it's, if you've seen the size of some of these little sixth graders. Yeah. You know, they're like 60 pounds. Right. And they're carrying around like this four-inch notebook with all their stuff in it. First of all, I've never kept a three-ring binder in my life and done a good job with it because that's not how I work. Right. Now, 
should everybody have to do that? It's just those kinds of rules. That's just one little tidbit of an example. But the conformity, see, I think humans, especially humans in charge, they want it to be neat and tidy, and it's not neat and tidy. When I was tutoring, I was going into schools for a while. I was working, like, down in the Nashua area, and I was meeting one kid in a middle school, right? And I, and I noticed, like, the posture of the kids had changed, you know, like 12, 13 years old, because they're carrying around these 40 oh, or 50-pound yeah. backpacks. And it's, it's, it was, like, a really striking visual for me that these kids who are should be so full of life and so energetic are walking like hunched over old men carrying these satchels too heavy for their spine to support well they're not allowed to have them anymore they can't have the backpacks in the schools now because of the liability of people tripping over them okay so now they have to juggle their materials which is another thing right if they just had a laptop that would be all they would need probably right right yeah maybe a novel if they like to read it in a real book Pauline Hawkins, she has the radio show I was telling you about, WSEA 106.1, Portsmouth Community Radio. She is a teacher in Colorado who wrote a resignation letter, high school English teacher. Her letter went viral, and it was in the HuffPost. Right. And so we met through a mutual friend, and we've been trying, we've been talking, talking now on the radio about some of these issues. You know, and she would say, you know, I had this class of like 13 boys and four girls last period of the day. You know, 13... 16-year-old boys, four girls, you know, or five girls, whatever it was. She had probably at least 75 minutes or so. So she'd let them go outside for a little bit of time, which I was always famous for, too. Let's go out for a quick walk, wake up our bodies. Of course, the star basketball player, like, twists his ankle, you know, and she gets into big trouble. (sighs) What are you doing outside during English class, you know? It goes on. I mean, luckily, the basketball player's parents were, were like, we're glad you let them go outside because kids need to move. Right, But So that's the other thing we need to look at as a culture is that, as humans, we need to move, right? Mm-hmm. And we are sitting. We have most young people, not most, unless they're, obviously, they do all their athletics after school. But during the day, there's so many, if they're not in athletics, they don't have core strength, they have bad backs, you know, they have all sorts of ailments because they have no good circulation because they're all twisted up on these desks. Mm-hmm. So it's really kind of crazy that we lock kids in a building all day. It, but it's so telling about who designed the schools, right? Well, the, co- like, the right. The, the, in- the industrialists. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, there was them, yeah. but then, you know, so the oh, industrialists they, they, yes, first, but then, you know, the academics of the 1920s and the 1930s and Thaddeus Russell, former academic who's on my show bunch, Ken Robinson, uh, yes. who I'm sure you, they, they both talked about this idea about how these are people who their body is something that just moves their head yeah. from place right, to right. place, from academic thing to academic thing. And that they're detachment from the actual world of children and the excitement and the liveliness of children that this would be an acceptable system that they designed now of course first for the industrialists but then for the progressives in the 19 teens and 20s and 30s that yes of course children will be able to sit still almost all day uh aside from the bare minimum of getting in getting up and moving around well you know there's a lot of good research out um rick hansen i actually have the book over there buddha's brain Mm -hmm. uh neuroscientist and a lot of people are studying neuroscience and i i do think that the the new millennium is about mapping the brain you know we have the body in the 20th century we learned so much about the human body and what we're learning in the brain is that when kids move and we've known this i mean this is not new news but they're being they're really identifying it more specifically is that they're they're going to think more clearly what's happening in the brain is 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 going to be so much more efficient so many more things firing you know synapses they they fire together they wire together you know and the practice of it so we know that when kids move uh theater is good for that and that's why you know there's a place for everybody in the theater because 
even if you just have an understanding is that we all come into the world in these vessels, you know, yeah. and it's not, everyone doesn't get an equal vessel. I mean, everybody has their issues. My legs are too short. My legs are too tall. Whatever it is, you know, I have flat feet. I know I have whatever. I have short arms, but we have these vessels and there's, they want to move. They don't, right. they, you know, there, there was a show on NPR yesterday about feet and how they actually, uh, have as much ability, except their toes are shorter than fingers to, um, be much more dexterous mm -hmm. than we allow them to be because we trap them in shoes all the time. So it's a sort of a similar thing. It's like you, you know, what you practice and put into motion will work. Your right. body wants to work. And so it doesn't want to sit and be talked at all day, especially. I mean, a lot of teachers do great things. They have cooperative activities. They have challenges. You know, they, they try to kind of mix it up. But it's limiting if you are in one classroom space and, you know, with 20 to 20, 20 to 30 other students, whatever, and Marshall is never as big as that, but like 20 to 25, and, and you're confined to that space. I mean, you have to, you're, what, 15, 16, 18 years old, you have to ask to go to the bathroom. I right. mean, these kinds of things are, they're not normal human behavior. I always think if we, if we deal with each individual's needs, because I'm an idealist, and you could, but you know what? That's what we want, right? We want individuals to have their needs met and to be able to seek them. Yeah. And then they're not going to, they're not going to be jerks. Like I don't really have discipline problems in my class. You know, right. I mean, most kids want to come and talk about their work and develop work and be collaborative about it because some of them are, are so much smarter than a lot of us. I mean, they have these ideas and I mean, they know things. I mean, they're on the internet. They're learning things on their own. They, they're also, what I said, closer to their truth. They'll be like, that is, that's wrong. You know, certain things are, they can, they can see the value systems that are so apparent, they see it. They see right through it. Yeah, it's interesting, too. I mean, we live in a time that can't be ignored by adults anymore, this this fact that you're talking about. Like, almost every child who ever lived had no outlet for unique ideas right. or pursuits. Library uh, day once a week. Uh, something like <laughs> that. That's all I had. Yeah, something right. like that. Even us, yeah, growing up. Today, a kid at 14 years old can be a, a star on YouTube and have a million people hear his or her ideas. And that's that's amazing. It also kind of speaks to the increasing irrelevance of school as it is set up for the for the apologists who are still arguing that it is relevant. So let's actually transition from your experience in the public school classroom to right. your vision for Big Fish. I just happened to walk in. Uh, we're at the Free Coast Festival here and. I walked in as you were starting to give your pitch okay. for Big Fish. Yeah. So I want you to share just that message with okay. my audience because I have a lot of people who are home educators, but there's a lot of people, I've gotten emails from these people, who are interested in doing alternatives, yeah. alternatives outside of school, self-directed learning. Right. But what is available? So you have a model that I like in many ways more than Sudbury which yeah, is the only too. one that we've really talked about right. on the show before as far as a place, as far as a physical plant where yeah. people can go because that's important it's, to well, parents, right. you know? Right. And, and it's, you got to get off your couch. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, you don't want your kid, oh, mom, on my laptop I, or in their bed. I mean, we've got to get kids out in the world. Right. So, so my mission is that um, I have been lucky to work in schools. And when you choose to teach English, you know, you, you can teach reading and writing about anything. Right, right. <laughs> you know, so I could always say like, well, you know. So, you know, they're writing about um, cannabis laws, you know, before that was like cool to talk about. Well, yeah. it's that's happening. So, yeah, they're going to write about it if they want to write about it. You know, I, I mean, I'm not going to censor their interests. So what Big Fish is, Big Fish is me sort of transitioning what I was trying to offer in the public realm 
into an alternative world, which means we want a place for teens to come and be self-directed learners, which means they get to choose what they're interested in learning, and we mentor their choices. So we provide, we try, we actually meet with them weekly. Either Darren, Amy, or I will each will have seven to ten kids each to start. We'll add staff as we go, and we'll we'll talk about training people to to be mentors for self-directed education, which really means, um, I mean, it could be an hour-long meeting where you're building the portfolio and actually documenting evidence of learning, or it could just be like, hey, what'd you do last weekend? And uh, you know, read any good books lately? I mean, mentoring comes in all all forms. But the idea is is to help that student take a look at what their interests are, knowing that that might change, or probably, mm-hmm. no, it might, might change. It will change, right? Because you think about your life, and you're, you know, some people single focus, but most of us have lots of interests. And so you don't always know what your interests are going to be until, right. you know, like I, I never had the opportunity to ride horses until I was 40. <laughs> and I never knew, and that, you know, it was 13, 14 years ago. I, I love them. And I had to somewhat be self-directed with this because I couldn't afford to take lessons, but I also have some wonderful friends. But I learned to ride a horse at age 40, and I became obsessed with this, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was able to work this out with uh, volunteering and... Uh, if, if I helped these people own the farm, they would take me riding and give me pointers every time we went out. You know, this is sort of like win-win, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what building community is. So I want com- kids to be able to come to the center and say, you know, I'm um, really interested in food and uh, recipes like ethnic cooking and the chemistry around cooking. And I want to be able to match them up. I've lived in this area a long time. I have a lot of friends. I have, you know, friends who are chefs. We have you know, we have uh, here at Seventh Settlement, Dave Boynton, has wonderful menu of recipes. Mm-hmm. We have people we can match these kids up right, to. Right, right. You know, they need to be out in the world. So what the biggest thing that happened was high school kids were coming back to me. I taught eighth grade for most of my career. They come back and they'd say, oh, my gosh, I'm just going to get through it. And I'm thinking that is so unfortunate because that's a waste of time. Yeah, yeah. They want relevance and I want relevance for them. And that's really what what the essence of Big Fish is, is that you come and you choose what is relevant for you and will support you. I love that idea. And again, that was Gatto's model for his middle school classroom, right? Right. He would hide from the administrators that, I mean, imagine doing these things today. Oh, God, you'd be in jail so fast. Oh, this is a great little story. Do you know the the video I Am by Tom Shadiak? No. Okay, really fun flick. Came out probably, oh, my gosh, must be about seven years ago or... Six, seven years ago. Anyway, Shadiak is the guy who discovered Jim Carrey, direct Hollywood director, okay, yeah, liar, yeah. liar, all of those. Yeah. So he had a um, bike accident, and he had a concussion, severe concussion, post-concussive syndrome. He uh, became very depressed and decided, what the heck? I've had like all these mansions. i got to do something. So he went out and did this documentary on what's wrong with the world and what can we do about it. Yeah. I, I show this every year. I see, just show it because mm-hmm. it talks about how humans are actually wired for cooperation more than they're wired for competition, mm-hmm. which makes complete sense to me. I mean, I grew up in a house full of athletes. My father's nickname was Coach. But I was like, you know, I was the youngest and the only girl. So do you think I ever run? Uh, you know, I never won at anything, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I had three older brothers that pounced on me. I, I never wanted anything. I was either going to be a great athlete or not so much, and I was a theater girl. So anyway, to make a long story short, what, what I, I show this because I, you know, they, they talk about Darwin. We're, we're so hung up on the fact that survival of the fittest, survival of the fittest which has kind of come, become our uh, mantra as Americans, you know, a lot of competition. And I'm not anti-competition. I'm actually quite a competitive person. Mm-hmm. But 
we've gotten so overboard with competition that we've left so many people behind. No, it's obviously it's a balance that you have to strike, right? Like if if we're talking like we like competition in the marketplace, right. but you can't compete successfully if you don't know how to cooperate with the people <laughs> who right. are your fellow. Well, and now you're hurting other people. Right. Yeah. I mean, how you know that's the other piece. So one time I um, showed this movie, and there was somebody who was quite upset that I showed it, and um, the comment to the administrator was, "You know, Diane Murphy makes makes our kids feel guilty for being Americans." You know, because we were looking at, I think, Foxconn and um, where they assemble um, Xboxes and iPhones and have, they've kind of cleaned it up a little bit. Human Rights Watch was on them in China. You know, the whole Foxconn, yeah, the, yeah. the nets, they were committing suicide, yes, Chinese yeah. workers. But then they, they actually, it's really, this is how ridiculous we can all be, though, those of us who are idealists, because they went in and cleaned up like the human rights abuses. And then the Chinese were upset because they really wanted to put all of these hours in so that they could like make a killing in two years and go back to their family. Like we sabotage what their goals were. You know, uh, for a lot of people, yeah, we I do bet that. Be I mean, the that's case, kind yeah. of like happens all the time with good faith efforts. That they what people want to become spokesmen for people and they know they nothing know about. about yeah, right. exactly. So but all I wanted to do was say, you know, just just be aware of of your own effect on the world. How did you respond when someone said, because I don't feel like anyone should ever feel guilty for possessing some kind of identity or right. being or in some kind of arbitrary category, like American. So how did you respond to that? I, I, was, I was told it after the fact. It wasn't told to me directly. And my, my sassy response was, well, good, then I've done my job. I mean, because it's not like I want them to feel guilty, but I want them to wake up. I want them, what I really wanted my students to know was that they were so privileged, so lucky. You know, that, that we have all of these things. You know, you were born in America. Like, that's just lucky. I mean, nobody picks to be born in North Korea, you know? I mean, we don't, I mean, we can get into this existential conversation, but, but I think we have to start with, with gratitude. Oh, absolutely. I mean, 100 billion people have lived on this planet. Right. 7% of them are alive right now. We have it better than almost, I mean, if you think about that, Right. Like to, to have it better than 99 percent of people who've ever lived. Right. And that's I'm just arbitrarily picking 99 percent, but it's at least that high. And then you think about the odds of being born now, being born here. Right. It is absolutely extraordinary. White? I mean, and we won't get into that, but hey, Whew. I mean, there's there's a lot of things where I have, I have two sons. Um, one will be 28 next week. The other's 22. And when they, they know this, they know how lucky they are. And we were not, I mean, you know, I was a single mom for 10 years and, and, you know, we did not have a ton of money, but we always had enough. Mm -hmm. We always had a home. We always had everything we needed. And we just take that for granted. I just want people to understand and kids to understand that you can still have things if that's what makes you happy. Yeah. You can still go out and you can make money. Making money is, is a good thing. I mean, if that, you know, but you also can be a positive force in the world. Sure. And I don't mind any of those things being framed as opportunities, right? Or, or, or reasons for gratitude. I only get concerned about those identity labels when they're used as guilt to knock people down, right? Right. But it's fine to, to observe these things. And it's fine for me to agree with the truth of, of what you're saying for sure. But, you know, if people use it as, you know, a source of gratitude and an embrace of opportunity, then I think that's really important. And, and, and a lot of us lead, I mean, I grew up in, I grew up here in this area, mm -hmm. right? So when I went to college and we wasn't surrounded by entirely white people anymore, or I started working with kids from inner city schools, nothing, nothing in my life had prepared me to be 
successful or comfortable in those kinds of situations, except full, unprepared immersion. Right. So even though we're focusing in on this identity thing, that lack of preparation for the world, right, right is a huge problem. Well, then, that and, lack and, of in New Hampshire, in Maine, yeah, my yeah. gosh, we're so white middle class. You know, they're so insulated from yeah from the rest of the world. And and you know, if you're a good reader, you know, and you're somebody who is open to uh, meeting other cultures, there we do exist in, in New Hampshire and Maine. Right. It's just uh, the world is a big is a bigger place. We're more connected than we've ever been. Mm-hmm. So. Our kids need to be more connected. They don't need to be isolated. And so that's the point of Big Fish. So one of the other parts that we go back to Big Fish a little bit is, you know, casting a wide net of not just the students who show up, but, you know, we're looking for community members to come and share. Like I said to you, would you come in and talk about what it, what it is to Love do a podcast? Love that idea. So you know? important. Yeah. Um, I have a friend who's a gourmet chef. She wants to come in and, and, and talk about her work. Another woman, a 76-year-old woman who wants to teach about comparative religions because she's been a world traveler and she's studied religions all over the world. But we need to meet these people who are doing real things out in the world rather than reading some, you know, blurb on a computer screen and having a virtual experience. They actually, there are people right around us in like, you know, a 30-mile radius. It's so amazing because in in the school mindset when it comes to these things is some of the children will like to cook. So we will section off an area of the school as a kitchen. And some of the children will like to work with wood. So we will section off another area of the school where they can work with wood. And you're saying, go out there and, and, and actually meet these the world people is your who classroom. are successful doing these things. Well, it's like lifelong learning, right? Exactly, exactly. So to that, what has your outreach been to this community? What is your radius yeah. for sending kids out into the world? And how many of those? You mentioned a couple of those connections. But talk about right. that process a little bit. Because right. I think a lot of home-educating parents might struggle with making those connections and making those outward paths for their kids themselves? So basically, we, we have a pretty, pretty good fa- uh, Facebook presence, which uh, I have a student helping us with, too. We yep. have a um, public group. Based, uh, we are Big Fish Friends mm-hmm. um, on Facebook. We're also bigfishnh.org. We have a website. We have uh, a contact information, and we'll send you any events that we have coming up. We want to do a screening uh, in November of a movie called Beyond Measure. Um, we're, so outreach, we, I've been basically just every day having about at least two meetings a day where I'm introducing our program to different members of the community. I met with the mayor of Dover, met with uh, different business owners, parents, uh, craftsmen, makerspace, you know, people, artists, builders, anybody who's, you know, one of our board members is a local goldsmith. Yeah. Self-taught. You know, been in business 30 years. Really, it's going to be a word of mouth. We're, we're looking at surrounding communities. We're going to be in Dover. So, you know, we're figuring people don't want to drive too many, maybe more than 20 miles to take their kid to, uh, you know, some sort of learning center four days a week. Uh, maybe some of these kids will drive. But we're thinking we're probably a 20 to 30 mile radius, mm-hmm. Dover. Um, there are three. We do have a network. We're called Liberated Learners that we're being modeled. We're modeling under Liberated Learners, which is the North Star program. All right. And yep. Ken Danford has the TED Talk from many years ago um, where he talks about it's okay to leave school. Mm-hmm. And so we are being mentored by them. I have a wonderful mentor who runs the Princeton Learning Cooperative. And they've actually now have three. So when they're within 30 miles of each other, and he uh, and he's overseeing all three of them. He started a little startup just like we're doing with $4,000, and wow. now they have three. The idea is um, homeschoolers are, are somewhat of our target population. We, we think that 
uh, homeschoolers kind of already have it all together. You know, they, they've already figured this out as far as like where their resources sure. are. I mean, they're a pretty, pretty savvy community. I, I have met with some homeschool parents and one of them um, is going to come and teach art with us. You know, we would love to have kids who are homeschoolers come and be members. We, they would be a great asset to our community and we would be able to offer them enrichment as well. Absolutely. And yeah. community, you mm-hmm. know, and we're going to go mountain climbing and rock climbing and we're going to take care of horses and we're going to work on organic farms and we're going to meet welders and artists and we're going to do whatever you want to do, you know, but you could actually, sometimes it's fun to do that with other people, right? Although homeschoolers are good at doing that too. Mm-hmm. But what we're really interested in, I think our biggest target mar- our audience, those kids who are in high school, who are, uh, you know, half there. That they're they're just anesthetized, right? And how do you get to them? How do we get to them? Well, <laughs> because I've been a, an educator in the area for 30 ah, years, yes, yes. I've been uh, networking a bit. Now, I did send out an informational packet to the guidance departments in the area schools, middle and high schools, mm-hmm. to explain who we are. We just sent that out last week um, to tell basically that, you know, we could be a real resource for schools. Because especially... Some of the students we're speaking to are kids who are kind, you know, they're, they are discipline issues or they're truancy issues, and they're really a pain for the schools to deal with. You know, like, oh, it's that kid again, right? Oh, right, right that kid doesn't want to go to school, you know. I worked at a school that caught those kids one time. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So, so in some ways, we, we really need to be partners with schools because schools, a lot of kids do well in school. Like, I'm not saying that, you know, I mean, I know your podcast is School Sucks, and I'm not going to totally disagree with you on that, but at the same time, there are a lot of kids who do really well in school. And I want to honor that. But I also, what we want is we want those kids who need to come out because they're not even coming close to tapping into their human potential. Mm-hmm. And all right, so that's how you have a network set up. What, what would be the process? The process is that you contact us at bigfishnh.org. There's a contact page. And what we do is we set up a meeting. So Amy and I had a meeting the other day. Uh, we, if, one or, you know, if one of us can do it, that's fine. But we'd like to have maybe two of us there. Darren lives a little bit farther away, but... We and what are a, each of their roles, just because you've okay, named them? Okay, so we have Darren Tapp, yep. PhD in mathematics. He is our math guru, configure, computer configurer. And, Past uh, school sucks guest, by the way. You know, we're kind of like each 10 years apart. It's kind of neat, you know, mm-hmm. 30s, 40s, 50s. Amy is a uh, foreign languages, world, mm-hmm. world cultures, world traveler. And so former public school, te- former school teacher, private and public. Oh, wow. So the three of us have all the teaching experience. You know, Darren's worked with a lot of kids at the Praxium, yep. right? And colleges, right? And so we all have been teachers, but we all are very passionate people. Amy's a marathoner, you know. I mean, we're all, we're like passionate people. And we want to show up for kids. So we will, so I'm the founder director, but really I'm just the same as they are. Like mm-hmm. we're the three core staff. I'm yeah. just the one that had the crazy idea and I had a little bit of cash to get it started. And I met them really synchronistically through, actually through John Trosbeck at an alternative um, ed conference, which is Arrow. If you don't know of Arrow, it's a good, you know of Arrow probably, yeah, Alternative yeah, Ed Resource Organization, Arrow. Yep. And uh, John and I were just chatting, and he's like, wow, you sound like you need to meet Ken from North Star. You sound like, you sound like Ken. Mm-hmm. And so um, I did. I went and met Ken, and I realized, yeah, I'm having a parallel universe here, except Ken left 20 years ago because, I don't know, I'm a slow learner. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, you, some people need a little longer training. Right, right. Um, so we will, the three of us are pretty much committed to pulling this off. We're going to hopefully have a four staff member next fall. We're going to, you know, hopefully build it to 40 to 60 kids, maybe yeah. open more centers as we go. We'll, we'll just get the first one, under, you know, going. The idea is to show up for teens in this way in the Seacoast area. So we were at the process of, you said a meeting happens. Okay, a meeting happens where um, we sit down with a family, mom and dad, hopefully both, and the student, the member. We don't really call them students. We, we like to say member because like we're that. Yep. membership. 
And so we sit down with them. And so now I'm, I'm asking parents to really go through the website with their son or daughter because, you know, it would be really nice for you to come to the table and have a meeting with us and know what we're about. So I ask them to really check out the website. Right. The big part of it is, is to sit down to, to see if we're a match. You know, yeah. I mean, do you have a son or daughter who wants to be a self-directed learner? Right. Yeah, like I yeah. said earlier, that kid said, ah, well, it was too much choice. That young person is not really going to thrive with us. They have to want that, you know, yeah, and there's absolutely. a lot of autonomy that comes with that and responsibility. Yeah. We're not babysitters. You know, we want to mentor you to explore. So that's going to take self-direction. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing my show for over eight years and I've really niched down from the idealistic position that I was in in the beginning. This is not for everybody. You know, it's, right. uh, it's unfortunate, but it's the truth. You can only intervene in, in so many places. So, yeah, I think that's a really important part of the process. So if right. you do feel like you make that connection with somebody, how do they move from the school? Oh, good. Yeah. Right. Oh, of course. Obvious question. Okay. Yeah. So what they do is they need to register as a homeschooler. Okay. Okay. And so we even have links on our website as to how to do that. The Maine and New Hampshire, because we're on like close to the border, I put both of them on there. Cause, and I was a Maine teacher for so long so that some of the kids we're already speaking to are former students of mine which is great because they know they're self-directed learners because they practiced it with me. Mm -hmm. So um, they would register as homeschooler, which in most cases, they, it's a letter to the superintendent just stating your intention. And then um, in New Hampshire, they like to see that you, um, they want you to run some sort of a test, you know, some okay, sort of achievement sure. test at the end of each year. Uh, there's some on the checklist that says you have to have an, a certified teacher review your work, but you really don't. As long as they take some, as long as you're checking in, you're saying, this is what we're doing. We're doing big fish, you know, or we're doing homeschooling. And the homeschool people will tell you more clearly how to do this, but it's actually pretty simple, mm -hmm. especially in New Hampshire, live free or die. I mean, there are very few laws about homeschooling. You, you, homeschooling is also legal in all 50 states. So, you know, it, it's not a complicated process. So they register as a homeschooler. We open in January. Uh, January 8th is opening day for us. And, um, yeah, they, they, they live as a free person who's, who's in charge of their own education. And they come when they want. And if they don't like to get up until 10 or 11, they come at 10 or 11. Right. If they want to stay till 4, they stay till 4. So so amazing. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it seems so, when I say it now, because I've been talking about it for so long, it doesn't seem that weird. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you know, one of the things that always becomes part of these conversations and investigations is outcomes, obviously, mm -hmm. right? And you have 30 years of experience dealing with curiosity about outcomes. So lots of questions about that are, are going to be asked for uh, right. a center Evidence. like this. Yeah. Well, I mean, even just like, what's the goal of the student who comes to you? Is it, and that's a, a very schooled question to it ask, is a schooled right? Question, what right? is the goal of all the students who come to you? But if we we're going to make some generalizations, are you trying to prepare kids to go to college, let's say? Right. And how are kids going to go to college if they haven't yeah, I mean, I've I've worked, I've done shows with like uh, Zach Slayback from Praxis. Oh, right. Okay, sure. about building a better credential than the college degree. Right. If people don't need to go to college anymore, they don't need to go to high school they anymore. Don't. And if they don't need to go to high school, they well, what, 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 Yeah, what, what are you doing <laughs> right. there? That's crazy. So there still is like some people are going to need to go to college. As frustrating as college is yep. to observe in 21st century America for all of the political problems and the cost and the debt slavery that it creates for so many kids, there are people who need that higher Absolutely. education, you know, all the way up to the PhD level. And colleges are still very important institutions for American society and the American economy. So I'm not, you know, completely dismissing the idea of college. People have to well, go. They have all the, re they have all the stuff. I mean, yeah. do you want a surgeon who's, like, self-taught? 
Exactly. I exactly. Mean, yeah. Know, yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't want a, somebody who's, you know, my, my dentist. I don't need a self-taught dentist. I want, you know, this isn't for everyone. I mean, this is maybe a path to becoming a surgeon. If you, if you were really wanting to become a surgeon, right? You yeah. You could certainly build a portfolio at Big Fish and really aim on the sciences. Like, you know, and we would help you meet people in this, in this field. But then they would be able to go to college because you do not need a high school diploma to get into college anymore. Mm-hmm. You need a portfolio. You need to demonstrate that you have areas of expertise. I mean, you need to prove that you can work in a structured learning environment. Like, that's why we would say go take a class at the community college or two or three that you're interested in. You know, take the SATs, you know, take other achievement tests. Show us that you can do that kind of learning because that's important too. But yeah. also, you know, do something collaborative. Do something where you have to be the leader. You know, lead something. Teach something. Teach a class at Big Fish. Yeah. You know? Um, so there's there are other other things people need to be able to do, different categories of things. And they can demonstrate it. So the North Star program, they provide us with a online portfolio. It's like a more of an academic-looking Facebook page, you know, store where kids would store all, they document all of the work. Yeah. So already I have a student who's been working with us doing some volunteering. And I said, let's document all of this because you're, you're doing some social media and marketing for us. Like, this is a skill you're learning. Yeah. You know, you're 15 years old and you know, I've started this nonprofit and you're, you're helping me. This is work. Mm-hmm. So they, they get into colleges. Every, colleges have the homeschool applications or they call it the alternate app. Mm-hmm. They usually like do great. You know, the, a lot of times you've probably heard from homeschoolers, uh, parents, you know, that people worry about their social skills. Right. Generally the homeschool kids are better at it because they're out in the world. Yeah. You know, they're not like sorted by batches. Right. That's another piece that really is mind boggling. You know, at Big Fish, we want to have 13 to 18 year olds or 12 to 19 year olds if they're, you know, able to have that kind of autonomy at 12. Right. So you have multi-age learning going on. I mean, I've had kids in my own class where, you know, you have a, a 13 or 14 year old and they, some of them, like the young woman who's helping us. She's like a an equal. I mean, she she's like an <laughs> right, adult, right, right. you know, at, at 14. A lot of these young women, and, and sometimes the boys too. The boys take a little longer, as we know. And then I had another kid who's still bringing like his teddy bear to school, right. you know, or his fidget toys and his little, uh, you know, whatever, trucks. I don't know. The levels are so different. But the opportunity to show value in some kind of institution or to somebody to else forced, exists. Right. And, but, yeah. to, but for in a regular system, when they don't have multi-age, you're forcing... These interactions among kids, the only thing they have in common is the same age. Exactly. Which right. is, is really kind of silly. And I'm not a big believer in tracking either because the tracking thing is like, it's like uh, dividing their, you know, it's like class division. Oh, I grew up, you know, my family has walls and walls of books. And then the other kid goes home and mom doesn't get home from her minimum wage job until 9 p.m. And I'm making my own dinner and there are no books in the house. Like, But at least they're the same age. Which is good I, if you're trying to build like a nineteenth century Central European oh, military. No. It's good to have people who are like close together in age for camaraderie. Well this yeah. this could come in handy, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well it did once and they haven't really modified it too much since yeah, then. Yeah. So so we're excited about this paradigm shift really. The first question I get from parents is, Oh my god, my kid can leave school? Mm-hmm. I didn't even think about that. You no, know, most people think it's prohibitive to be homeschooler because they can't be home because both moms and dads have to work. So this is a way for, for you to have a homeschool-ish environment. We call ourselves a hybrid, not school, not home. We're like a hybrid. Right. You're not in a, a factory setting. Uh, the other thing I keep hearing from parents, too. Oh, no, not from parents. This is from kids. The ki- piece with kids is they don't want to leave their friends. Yeah. You know, and I get that. 
Like, I, I mean, they, they thrive. Teenagers thrive on their social interactions with people. Indeed. But they also can have connections with adults that are meaningful, which they're not getting as much of in school. Because, first of all, it's like a liability issue, right? Teachers are encouraged to have many boundaries. I got into big trouble for calling a kid on her cell phone last year. Right. You know? Yeah, sure. It's like I had been spending every day after school with her working on a play and you know she kept skipping school she had like 20 absences and this big rehearsal called her on her cell phone and said get here you know but anyway not you know i guess that was a boundary in my world that's not a boundary in my world that was me caring about this kid and the program and our play you know right, caring yeah. about the whole project so this idea of kids want to be with their friends so big fish needs to create that community of friendships multi-age yeah. community of friendships but not just of kids but of the adults who show up yeah. And elderly people are going to be right down the hall from the senior center in Dover. How perfect is that? How <laughs> right. perfect is that? People yeah. are like really like 70s and 80s. People in their 70s and 80s now are like super vibrant now. Yeah. They really yep. are. Yep. And I, I've seen just from my own experience with having, you know, teenage nephew or working with teenagers for years in the past is kids will sacrifice a lot to maintain their social comforts, right? It's right. a really important thing. And sometimes they realize what they're sacrificing. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes they don't. But that is the priority at that age. And, you know, I, I think so many of them don't even it's unfortunate and I hate to say it, but they don't even comprehend this idea or this availability of meaningful adult interaction right. in the world right now. Adults are just like, get away from me. You know, I mean, that's the attitude. Like, yeah. and I thought I was the coolest teacher. I thought I was the coolest tutor. And I just remember walking into so many situations. Oh, especially and, high school. Yeah, high and, school. They're just like, hey, if yeah, you're over than 20, if you're set. older than 20, I don't want you don't exist in my world. I mean, a lot of them. Yeah, and I already have an idea of what you are just by the role that you have, right? right? Which was really kind of disappointing yeah. to me because I thought I was very cool. Well, because they could meet you on an, you know, an even level, one yeah. human to another human. Yeah, exactly, which was my goal, yeah. Right. But it took a long time to establish that, to break through the kind of set roles or their expectations. So I did go down to Sudbury mm -hmm. and watch some of the interactions there. I wasn't crazy about... The politics of the school or the model of the school. It was in Framingham, Massachusetts, the yes, original Sudbury. Yes, I know Sudbury. about it, yeah. Yeah, but I did like the way that everybody interacted at the school. Well, you so know? there's a democratic school, you know, and, and I, I think for us not being a school is really important. I don't want to be a school. I want us right. to be a community, um, which just means, you know, we're, we're going to have agreements. Like the democratic school model is great, but there's a lot of things that go on in that is like you have to vote on everything. Like it's a, like this pure democracy, like you yeah, can't paint yeah. the building. Uh, you know, I mean, this is... It's like benevolent dictatorship has always been my thing, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, where somebody has to be in charge, right? But yeah, I like to, yeah. but I also like to give over the lead to other people too. But I'd like for us at Big Fish to have agreements, you know, that you like, you know, you clean up your own messes and, you know, you're kind, you know, I mean, there are going to be agreements like that. But as far as like needing to have all these rules. Somebody was saying on the, there was a peaceful parenting panel yes. yesterday and somebody said the rules are few, but they're clear and they're important, right? Right. And they're strict. Which is which is totally fine. That there's there's ex kids love expectations. Oh, we love structure. Kids Humans love, love structure. structure. You know, and that was always the biggest problem. The 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 behavior problems that I dealt with when I was working, always grew out of oh, a, yeah. a lack of structure. Or on the other side, too much structure. And then anytime there was a pocket of unstructured uh, activity, it was just a space to uh, completely lose it. I found. So I was talking with um, a woman about that at the Liberty meeting today, where mm -hmm. we, we were saying how it's. It's this two sizes. It's like a paradox, right? Where you have passion takes you out of balance in a sense. Like you, you know, you're, you're kind of an extreme. Yeah. And then yeah, on yeah. the flip side of it, we're looking for balance, right? So like we're driven by our passions, but we're seeking balance. So it's just like this constant kind of dance of 
like I'm really passionate about this, but I also need to make sure that like I still have dinner with my husband and I have a good relationship with my kids and that I take care of my body and that I, you know, eat good food. Like there's all this other stuff that goes into being human. Right, right, right. Absolutely. So, so you know, it's like the kid, the big conversation now with sports is like, you know, you pick one sport and you just like beat your body to death and play one sport your whole childhood, right? Yeah. It's a, yeah, that's really difficult because that happens with me with some of the work that I do. You know, there's projects that I'm really, really passionate about. I'll look up from working on it, the computer, and I'll be like, it's nighttime. I thought it was daytime. Yeah. How long have I been sitting here? Nine hours? You know, when right. did I last eat? Oh, I'm in my sweatpants yes. still. You know, like things like that. That happens a lot. And uh, yeah, I mean, prioritizing lifestyle balance, but maintaining passion. That's a difficult balancing well, and act. And we don't talk about that in school, right? right? No, I mean, never. But I mean, that would be the kind of thing I talk about with kids. Right, exactly. You know, I'd be like, hey, you know, how is your body? Like, how do you feel? I, did you, do you guys, are you morning eaters? Or, you know, let's, let's do this, you know, energy exercise and see if, you're, see if you can wake up a little. Mm-hmm. You can tell if you're, if you're in a classroom full of people who are asleep. You know, and like you're really excited about Hamlet and they're just like not having it. Right. And, oh, sure. You know, it's like, maybe we need to go for a walk. Yeah. I mean, this is where oh, like forced educate, forced schooling. It, it just doesn't. It's, it's hard. Right. And it's, it's like hard. what's non-negotiable is that this it's is hard. a domination system. Right. And I play this role and you play this role. And like you're just saying like, oh, well, uh, that doesn't work right now. Uh, let's renegotiate that, right, at least right, temporarily, right. like at least for the next 15 minutes, right. just for the sake of, you know, these relationships, your sanity as right. both a teacher and a student in that situation. And yeah. that never even occurred to me when I was a teacher. I was like, I just bought into the domination well, system model. Fear, oh, so you asked me earlier about other colleagues and, right. and the school. So what's interesting, I think, is that my colleagues, I think, are very happy for me. Yeah. They, they feel like I'm like doing what I've been dreaming about doing and they know I've been pretty vocal about how I feel and they're like we, we we love you you know go on do this this is great I think most of them actually agree with me but they wouldn't necessarily say that publicly because right. it would be a death wish now oh, sure it's so easy to get blackballed when you're a teacher because if the administration decides that they want you out even if you're tenured they can make your life miserable you know by just assigning you in a you know they can change your assignment to something you don't want to do I've, yeah, I've seen it that happen. That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, they, they just, you don't, I've been in that place, it's been a, years ago, where, you know, I, I managed to kind of surf out of it eventually and rebuild. But at the same time, I've in the last seven or eight years, I've, I've been pretty unpopular with the administration because I asked them. You know, they, they, they spend more than half a million dollars on this thing called AVID, which is a, a, a corporate program for inner city poor kids. And it's called, it's like this best practices. And they, this district, local district, spends all this money on this. And they send teachers down to Philadelphia every year. And it's irrelevant. I mean, yeah, there's some best practices. But we also have a lot of local people and teachers who have these skills and these expertise. You know, this, plus it's like inner city, low income kids. This is rural Maine, New Hampshire. You know, it was an inappropriate fit. Mm-hmm. I think what happens with administrators is they're looking for that, like, the ring, you know, the, the golden ring, the magic bullet. The thing that solves all the problems. Right, and, right. It's, and it usually it comes with a corporate price. Oh, there was something, there was a great program that claimed it could score writing pieces. Mm-hmm. Okay? And it was the best thing and the worst thing because we saw how ridiculous it was. How, how is an algorithm going to really judge, like, voice? You know, I mean, think about literature, right? Right. I mean, so, so they had this program, and the kids would write these essays. So I said to the kids, write nonsensical write a lot, write, use big words, and use complete sentences. And they scored off the charts, and they were all BSing. 
I mean, it was just like one of these things that was, you know, this is going to make school more efficient because now we have a computer that's going to tell kids how good their writing is. Right, yeah. And it, and it was, you know, of course it just flopped. But I, I don't know how many thousands of dollars we spent on that. But these, the admin, instead of looking out, they need to be looking in. They have all the experts right in their buildings. People don't choose to go be teachers because they want to be told what to do. Right. They're all very brilliant people. Ask them. That was like I was I was in high school and I was observing this difference that I was mentioning to you earlier about the young and the old teachers and them being on opposite sides of being kind of run through the ringer of the system. Then when I got to my master's program for education, around the time I think you were having a lot of these frustrations with goals 2000 right. and No Child Left Behind, early 2000s, you know, all the people in my master's classes were young teachers who, you know, who were back to get their master's because, you know, it's a requirement in mass in New York. And all they did was complain. Mm -hmm. All they did was complain about, you know, 25 years old, the part of their career oh. where they should be, be the most well, that's idealistic. Why there's a teacher shortage. Exactly. <laughs> well, they learned since then in the last 10, 12 years, they've learned. I have no freedom. People come into my classrooms with clipboards and oh. they don't say anything. They just look around. Oh, it's disgusting. Yeah. And they judge you on, they call them these quick looks. These, what do they have? These like mini looks. It's like a three minute thing. And they look to see if you have the objective on the board, which I never would do. Yeah, and the number, <laughs> the number of the objective. So, no, no, and I, I refuse to do it. And so one time I said to an administrator, how about you come and stay a whole class, and then why don't you tell me all the objectives that you'll see? Because I know you're going to see a lot of them. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're doing stuff all the time. Right. When do you teach theme, is what one of my administrators asked me a couple of years ago. When do I teach theme every damn day? Every time we talk about a story, an event, theme is part of the human can theme is what we need to be aware of right right i mean the themes of life and living that comes up all the time when do you teach theme i don't know tuesday four o'clock stop by we'll talk about theme right oh, that's terrible that's how it goes well i think it's a school thought pattern to look for easy answers right we see plenty of that in the outside world explain it to me in 30 seconds or less or you lose my attention that's kind of like mm -hmm. the product of our age but i mean it's also a schooled mindset that you that is showing up in administrators you have yeah, yeah. for just half a million dollars I can solve all of these frustrating yeah, exactly. administrative logistical problems inside the school sold right when it has nothing to do with authentic education well, it looks pretty on paper so every, every they have these like late start days and you have to work on curriculum and so you know we have to produce these documents these build these units some people think it's very important work because they want to have this library of units that no one's ever going to look at yeah and, and that's the, that's bean the madness counting. yeah and, and yeah I like data I want data yeah. I want to see that my kids, you know, have have of course. vocabulary and they're articulate and they can read and write, but but I don't need data all the time. Well, I think yeah, I mean if somebody wants to teach in the current climate, the first class they should have is like something like IEP writing, right? Write 50 IEPs yeah, and then, then see if you want to go on to the second class. <laughs> then see if you want to continue on to the no. next phase. Yeah, no, that would be soul crushing. Yeah, but that's how it was for me. So the the thing my the worst line in an IEP is that line of self-regulation. Mm. Self-regulation. I had a kid last year, one of the most s sweet, young, eighth-grade, male, love-and-light kid. And he was told that he needed to, you know, this he's not self-regulating. You know, what the heck? Exactly. That's the progressive dream and the industrialist dream of education, that we can put this programming into people and then they will self-regulate with very little maintenance. So unfortunate. Because people are... I think what's exciting, I do think we're at a tipping point. I think we're waking people up because I think humans are capable of far more than we give ourselves credit for. You know, yeah. the, this the whole thing with neuroplasticity, this idea now that I can be 54 and I'm actually can learn new things. Indeed. You know, I, I mean, figuring out how to learn languages. That's one of my goals coming up with Amy. She's 
fluent Spanish, beautiful Spanish speaker. We put limits on ourselves. And then it's like, people are, when are you going to retire, Diane? I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> what, I'm 54? I'm supposed to hang it up and. Right, yeah. No, I have all this energy and, and all of these dreams to like go on and travel and learn and new do things, you know, do things and meet new people. And I don't know, I can also stay at home and garden too. Exactly. But I'm going to learn about it. There, there's, there's opportunities. Instead of limiting our youth, we need, to, we need to lift them up. We need to give them opportunity. And we need to also, someone said it earlier, and I don't know if it was part of our conversation here, but this idea that everyone needs to go to college, it's really, it's not, it's unfortunate. Cause it is. Every, it doesn't. It does, that, this is not your only way. So if you go to Big Fish, we have, you want to go to college, we'll help you go to college. You want to start a business, we'll help you start a business. You want to learn a trade, we're going to help you get into a path to learn a trade. You want to go into the arts, we're going to help you go into the arts. You know, there are so many paths. And then the college thing became a really good way to manipulate young people. Indeed. Well, it's also part of a kind of egalitarian fantasy. Like, hey, youngster, instead of going and succeeding in something outside of college, you know, come fail at college. Yeah, where where are you from? You know, this whole, like, where's your degree from? Exactly. I mean, how many times have people asked you? Where'd you get your degree from? Oh, no one ever asked me. I, maybe I Isn't just kind of put off a vibe. No, no one ever asked me that either. Yeah, yeah. I was applying at a tutoring company. It was very, I wound up not working there very long. It was just like, you know, part-time fill-in work six, seven years ago. The company was so bureaucratic. It was like being in a school. And, you know, at the application, the woman wanted, or the interview, she wanted a copy of my college degree. Or she goes, can you bring in your college degree next time so I could photocopy it? I'm like, yeah, if I can find it. She goes, mine is on my wall. Of course like, it is. Oh, mine's in a box in my mother's basement. I don't know where mine is you know, either. Falling up, getting water damage. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know. I guess I just have something. I mean, certainly no one's asked me that in the last, you know. Ten years. Ten years. But I didn't even understand that that mattered. You know, no one told me that. They're like, oh, yeah, if you're going to go to college, you should really work to get into a best one. Like, college is not yeah. just college. There's like a, a real hierarchy. They never even told us that in high school. I like had I, no we idea. understood like Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Oh, I graduated yeah. in 81. I had yeah. no idea. I applied to three colleges. Yeah. You know. But I went to like a last chance college kind of place. Yeah. You know? I, there's just so many other opportunities. And I think that's the other piece with the online world now is that we can turn, you know, all the, a lot of older people and, you know, even parents are so afraid that their kids are addicted to the internet. Well, who, they would be too. Right? And they are. I mean, yeah. look at a dining table. If we look out and see, you know, Parents are just as much on their phones at the dinner table in restaurants Indeed, as kids. Indeed, yeah. You know, but, but the idea is, is that they're the tools of our time. Mm-hmm. So, like, let's learn to use them for good, like, to connect appropriately and then to put them away appropriately, but not to have them be this, like, taboo or tricky thing, you know, sneaky thing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. So, I'm really excited your energy and your enthusiasm survived. <laughs> 30 years of public school teaching and that you're you're applying it to this new endeavor which i think is awesome i think this will be the first of many conversations that yeah, we I have look forward to it. both you know about these bigger topics and about big fish itself oh i'd love you to come talk to some of our kids once we get our kids rolling because kids love to uh be on podcasts and tell their stories i would love to have kids on podcasts yeah yeah, I've been talking to college students lately. Yeah. And I've, I've been meaning to do more of that, but I'd love to even talk yeah, to younger kids. we definitely should set that up. I mean, I think that is, that is the piece of part of being an English teacher most of my life is that it is about the story. The stories are what connect us. Absolutely. You know? And so thank you for doing a podcast because you provide this vehicle for us to tell our stories. Happy to do it. And uh, I look forward to more conversations. I am so grateful that you talked to me today. Can you give the site if people in my audience want to learn more? Absolutely. Please go to bigfishnh.org and you'll see contact information on our one of our tabs. I put 
Uh, we're building it more and more, but there's a lot of information there, a lot of yeah. recommendations. So please go check it out, bigfishnh.org. I would love to hear from you if you have suggestions, if you want to come and, and mentor a kid or you want to volunteer, be a part of our community. We want to get teens integrated into community. Awesome. Thanks, Diane. Supporting listeners are raving about our bonus series, The Discomfort Zone. But what is The Discomfort Zone? What do we do on this show? It's a vent for a lot of shit that happens in our life where we make lemonade. You know about this? How you take lemons? No. Oh, you've never heard this? No. Okay. Explain. There's a saying mm-hmm. when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. You're I don't get it. Okay. Lemons. I like lemons as they are. Wow, that's really the right approach. I don't care for lemonade. That's pink, very pink lemonade. I know that that's very lame, but I like pink lemonade. Well, what I'm saying is, I don't, I don't want to torture this this metaphor. How many lemons? It varies. It's just you turn each one into like a sweeter uh, beverage. Do I have to convert them all to lemonade, or can I keep some of the lemons as they are? You know, because at least with a lemon, I can play catch with myself. Like if I was locked in a jail cell. And you said, okay, you can have a lemon or you can have lemonade. I'll take, take a lemon. Because lemon, you can every touch time. with yourself exactly. and then have a drink. And if I get mad enough, I can throw it at the door and smash it on the wall and yeah. smear it. And it smells nice. But the lemonade smells nice too. But the lemonade is going to get ultra sticky. So lemon every time. Well, sounds like you really have the right attitude. Like your attitude is so good that this metaphor doesn't even. <laughs> anyway. My attitude is don't make lemonade. When life gives you lemons, be happy. Wow. Very stoic. Yep. So we take our own problems and frustrations and we turn them into other people's entertainment and our entertainment in the meantime. And that's a very nice gift to ourselves and to other people. And it's something that we should cherish. And I really like that we have some amount of very uh, dedicated listeners, no matter how little that amount is. Each one of those listeners is my little lemon. That's very sweet. (laughs) Well, it's sour, but it is. But um, if I had too many lemons, what am I going to do with all these lemons? So make lemonade. Uh, It seems like a waste of effort. It's good to have options. Coffee beans to coffee. That's a better analogy. Coffee beans are gross. Right. Until you make coffee out of them. Oh, what a treat. Hey, thanks for sticking through all the way to the end. That is a promo you just heard for one of the subscriber-only serial shows that I am, serial with an S, that I am most proud of. It is called The Discomfort Zone. We are now in our fifth season. We have explored a variety, a wide variety of personal and professional development topics I've been co-hosting that with my friend Andrew on season five. We have a couple of other co-hosts as well, Drew and Alex, and what a time that has been. So the Discomfort Zone is one of the benefits offered to people who choose to support the mission and the spreading of the message of the School Sucks Project. The easiest way to get access to all episodes is to go to patreon.com slash school sucks. Patreon is the primary, the most important means of supporting the School Sucks Project as far as our present and our future is concerned. So again, that is patreon.com slash school sucks. And before we're out of here, I just want to say thank you to a couple of people. First, Alice Clark for increasing her monthly contribution. 
and to Brian Webster, who joined our top tier of Patreon support. Thank you so much for doing that, Brian. I just saw you show up in our University Private Community Discord, so I look forward to interacting with you more there. I am recording this on Wednesday, June 15th. We've got a group meeting tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern. We meet Tuesdays and Thursdays, 3 to 4.30 p.m. Eastern time. We had a fantastic conversation yesterday. I cannot believe how many topics we fit into an hour and a half. The other path into the university is to purchase our ideas into action. I'll call it a pod course since it's mostly conversation-based. It's called the Ideas into Action Summit. It is basically me assembling a very impressive crew of thinkers and media creators to run through step-by-step the three big steps of the critical thinking process. Acquiring new information, assimilating new information, removing contradictions, and then being able to present that information in a persuasive manner. It was created in 2019. It is aging like a $200 block of cheese. I don't even know if such a thing exists, but imagine how gracefully that would age. Go to SSP on Eversity. Just spell that university.com slash ideas into action. You can also find the link right in the show notes. All right. We'll see you soon with the 16th installment in the Essential School Sucks. I hope you're having a great week. Bye.